HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food writer and dessert person, Claire Saffitz. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Claire about being a dessert evangelist, receiving the 2021 IACP Julia Child First Book Award, and we'll hear Claire's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We know Julia was passionate about food writing. She saw it as both a tool for sharing knowledge and a way of supporting others and discovering the things she loved, like being in the kitchen and the pleasures of eating good food. In that spirit, throughout her career, Julia supported IACP, the International Association of Culinary Professionals. IACP's highly regarded cookbook awards rival the James Beard Foundation's. IACP bestows a Julia Child First Book Award in recognition of Julia's devotion to the group and the milieu. Independent judges select the most outstanding cookbook of the year written by a first-time author. IACP's goal is to propel promising food writers along in their career, a value shared by the foundation. For the last several years, we've supplemented the IACP Julia Child First Book Award with a $5,000 grant to further help advance the author's writing career. In the past three years, the award has gone to Samin Nosrat for the acclaimed salt-fat acid heat, Naz Duravian for her book on Persian food, Bottom of the Pot, and Chef Johannes Gabriasis for his book, Ethiopia, Recipes and Traditions from the Horn of Africa. To hear more from these esteemed authors, check out episode 15 with Samin 
episode 54 with Naz, and episode 111 with Johannes. In 2021, ICP selected food writer, recipe developer, and video host Claire Savitz's first book, Dessert Person. It was published by Clarkson Potter in the fall of 2020 and quickly became a New York Times bestseller. Claire shares a number of qualities with Julia, including most notably, she's a very good on-camera teacher. Like Julia, she's relatable, feels like an instant friend in the kitchen, and she's a cat lover. If Claire's name rings a bell, she rose to prominence, even online fame, as the host of Bon Appetit magazine's web series, Gourmet Makes. In the show, Claire's challenged to reverse engineer home cooking versions of popular candy and snack food. She had already begun a professional separation from Bon Appetit when the racial reckoning of 2020 swept through the magazine and test kitchen, leading to reorganization of its editorial staff. Born and raised in St. Louis, Claire graduated from Harvard, studied French cuisine and pastry at the École Grégoire Ferrandi in Paris, and earned her master's degree in history from McGill. Before her star-making turn in Gourmet Makes, she was a senior food editor at Bon Appetit magazine. Now a published cookbook author, she hosts her own YouTube baking channel and develops recipes from her home base in New York City. Claire joins us today to advocate for the value of dessert and share her food writing aspirations. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you for having me. We're delighted you could be here. So let's talk about you and dessert and where where things are going for you. So, but let's start, not totally at the beginning, but I was just curious, like, when did you discover or self-identify as a dessert person? Yes. So great question. I have always been a dessert person, but I don't think that I, I did not really self-identify or even become aware of that fact until my adulthood, because I think as a kid, I internalized a lot of kind of like cultural messaging around food and eating, um, but I've always loved sweets. I just didn't fully embrace myself as a, as a dessert person until I really kind of entered food media and started to think more critically about my own tastes and the role of food in my life and in all of our lives. Um, so I think it was really in like my late 20s, early 30s, where I was like, you know, I, I'm not trying to deny this part of myself and I'm not trying to deny myself in general when it comes to food ever. Um, I love sweets. I always want dessert at the end of a meal, even if it's something super small, like a piece of chocolate or just a bite of something, but I always want to finish a meal with dessert. And so I just started to, and I've always loved to bake. And so obviously those things go hand in hand. Um, and it never made sense to me that I would bake something and then not eat it. Uh, so I've always been a dessert person, but I have embraced it more as like an identity um, and a marker of myself, I would say, in the last, you know, five years or so. Well, I love it because I like dessert too. And nothing bores me more than, I mean, barely allowed to go to restaurants these days. But when mm -hmm. we used to be able to, it was so boring when, you know, restaurants followed this thing of often, even top restaurants, the dirt was, dessert was sort of secondary. And it was literally the same thing on almost every major restaurant menu, maybe one variation. I could even mm -hmm. name them now, but I won't. And so it was always exciting when there was actually something different. But then also, like, I agree with you, even after a massive tasting menu, actually, usually dessert was too much. But having a little mini, nothing I like more than like mini cookies or little petty fours at the end just for that something sweet. 
Right. I mean, I am not into the idea of austerity. Like I, my approach to food is like food is pleasure. Food is a fundamental part of our lives. It is a locus of sociability. It's how we relate to each other. It's how my family in particular like spends our time. You know, we, we organize ourselves around food and cooking and the idea of going like out to a restaurant and being asked, would you like to see the dessert menu and saying, no, I just like, I don't understand it. It's like, I, I always, I very least want to see it. I would love to, I want to see what's on it. And then I'm not definitely going to like order something, even if it's like one scoop of ice cream. Like I don't mind if it's one dessert for the table of four people and a spoon. Cause sometimes that's, that's definitely enough. But I like my attitude toward food is to say yes, rather than no. Yes, we are totally like-minded. I feel the same way. Even if I'm full, I do want to see the dessert menu. I might not even order anything, but I want to know what's right. on it. Because, <laughs> and and generally, once you see it, you like you said, you if if you're not full, then you get one thing to share, one thing to taste, or just a delicious scoop of ice cream, which is right very satisfying. I mean, and I, I don't understand the like. This is something that I experience with friends or people in the food industry is like the idea and just people in general, the idea of choosing between dessert and something else like, Oh, I'll have another glass of wine, but I won't have dessert. I'm like, I don't under, why is it either or like I'm an, and I like the (laughs) and moment with food, you know, like I just, and, and that's not to say that you shouldn't listen to your body cues or, you know, you don't always have to, have dessert if you don't want to, of course, but the idea that like, you know, you don't have to choose. It's not about, these are sort of arbitrary rules that I think somehow like, oh, you know, and and I of course understand people sort of with health issues and limiting sugar consumption, of course. And, and I believe in moderation first and foremost, and, and certainly listening to your body cues. And I, you know, like to practice certain principles of intuitive eating, but my body tells me that I want to eat dessert. <laughs> and so that's what I do. Well, and I think that really when someone says, oh, I'd rather have a glass of wine than dessert, it's because they don't actually like dessert. They don't have a sweet tooth. It's kind of just an excuse for another glass of wine. Although, of course, wine is full of sugar, but that's another story. (laughs) And I I think that's like the – that's the decision that people are – the sort of false decision people are setting up. But I also – and I write about this in Dessert Person. I don't actually believe people when they say that they're not – that they don't like sweets or that they're not a dessert person because – there's like five tastes. Sweet is one of them. How can you say, no one goes around being like, oh, I'm not a salt person or I'm not a, or maybe they do, I don't know. Or I'm not a sour person. Like, I, you know, I just think it's one of the five tastes. There must be some sweet flavor out there that you like. Maybe you just haven't, maybe, maybe you know, I don't know, the types of desserts in the restaurants you go to maybe aren't your taste or maybe you're you're saying that what you don't like is really sweet desserts, which I understand and I don't like things that are cloying. Um, but I just, am, I don't know. I think that there's a dessert for everyone. And I, I just look suspiciously upon people who say, <laughs> I don't, I'm not a sweet person because I'm just like, really? I just can't, I can't, I can't accept that. That's a pretty good argument, I would say, using the taste bud principle. And then it's really an order of magnitude sort of thing, which is, yes. yeah, not that you don't like anything sweet. It's that you're a person who who, who doesn't appreciate or anything that's too sweet or super um, sugary. Um, right. Yeah, I know. I'm fascinated by – there are people who don't like honey, which I never – I was like, how could you not like honey? It's like, wow. I mean, I don't know. I like to, I like to press on those things because it's like – and I just want to ask more questions because, you know, for 
I guess my mind goes to questions like, okay, like, have you had different kinds of honey? What is the kind of honey you're responding to? Because I think like, you know, a lot of honey that's out on the market, and I'm sorry, this is sort of a tangent, but um, is not necessarily real honey. And there's so many kinds of honey. I'm just like, I don't, again, I'm sort of like, I don't accept. I think that there probably is a honey you can appreciate. (laughs) It's just that maybe you haven't, I don't know, maybe you've only had subpar honey or something. So I I don't know. But I mean, I'm not trying to deny people their, their taste, of course. I think it's very important to develop a sense of taste and palate. And it's totally fine to say like, I don't like this thing. I say this all the time. I've, I've developed more dislikes actually as an adult <laughs> than I had as a kid uh, because I think critically about them. But I just want people to know that there's like a vast world of sweets out there. And I think that they're going to like at least one of them. <laughs> so um, I think like everyone is a dessert person. So is I almost feel like, is your next book going to be called like Dessert Detective? Uh, no, I am working currently on finishing up the next book and actually still don't really have a title for it, but I don't think it's going to be that. Um, maybe dessert people. If you're saying that you don't believe that (laughs) that truly has crossed my mind. Um, (laughs) but, but the next book really, it sort of is, you're on the right track because it is an exploration of different kinds of sweets. Like dessert person was really all baked. Everything in dessert person except for one or two recipes got cooked in the oven. And it was really about my love of baking and pastry and and a celebration of like the 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 properties of of flour. Um and this other this next book is much more expansive and includes many more types of desserts and desserts made on the stovetop and frozen and chilled desserts. So it is kind of it does allow people to be their own dessert detective about like trying to find the dessert that's right for them. So at the, is it with Clarkson Potter again? Yes. Okay. Well, at the risk of getting Francis pissed off at me, I will switch gears and ask you, (laughs) take a step back and say, at the same time, I'm curious when you became aware of being a dessert person, you know, I read off your educational credentials, which don't necessarily scream food writer or Bon Appetit editor. So Mm -hmm. when did you decide food writing was something you wanted to pursue or even a career goal? It was a moment in grad school. I went from culinary school right into a one-year master's program at McGill, as you mentioned. Um, But with the focus, it was in the history department, but with a focus on food history and intellectual history of food, uh, because I thought that I would be an academic. That was I don't want to say that it was a default, but it was just a career. I always loved school. I loved learning. I loved writing. And I was like, well, I'm an academic. I can do all of those things as my career. So I went to grad school. um, But about halfway through my program, I decided that I really missed cooking and that I really wanted to be in the kitchen, at least for some of the time. But I didn't want to be in a restaurant setting. I knew that really wasn't right for me. and I, and I wanted to write, but I also felt like, you know, one of the one of the things about academia that wasn't as appealing was that you're writing for like an inherently small audience or circumscribed audience. Um, and I was like, well, like there must be, you know, people do popular writing about food. And then I remember thinking to myself, I, I truly remember having this thought, oh, my God, there's food magazines with recipes in them and somebody has to make those. Like, I wonder who does that. And then that was when this, I mean, it sounds silly, but that was when the idea of food media became 
like it, it kind of came into focus for me of like, oh, this is, this is maybe a career. It just wasn't a career that was, that felt like an option or that I was even super aware of, um, you know, in, in like four year university, as far as like, I was in the, you know, I studied the humanities as far as careers. It was like, well, if you don't want to go to law school or med school or, I don't know, work in finance or consulting, like we don't really like, good luck, you know, let us know how it goes. No, I get it. I had none of the jobs I've had, I was aware of in university even existed. So yeah, you go to university and you think you can be a professor, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a nurse, and a cop and a firefighter. Right. (laughs) So yes, no, I understand that. And it sounds like even though your family was into food, it's not like there were food magazines stacked up in every corner of your house growing up. You know, there was always Martha Stewart Living, which I read every month and loved it. I don't know. It just somehow didn't <laughs> But you thought become... it wrote itself. Or Martha just wrote yeah, everything in it. I, yes. Maybe. I seriously maybe thought Martha wrote everything herself. I mean, I don't actually think that I thought that, but it just didn't become this thing that I looked at critically as like, oh my, oh wow, someone has to has to make this. I just, I was naive about the food, about food media in general. And I think I had this kind of narrow idea that to work in the food industry meant to work in a restaurant. And of course, it's a vast, you know, it's a vast landscape with with many different entry points. So that was when I was like, oh, I, I wonder who makes these magazines. And that, and that was how it started. Well, that's a great segue because I don't want to spend all our time on this, but obviously you were at, ended up working for one of the the top food magazines and in America, Bon Appetit magazine. And you were also there both at a kind of pivotal time for your career and then a very pivotal time for the magazine. So I I wanted to ask you, you had quite an experience because you were maybe having a traditional role and then kind of thrust on camera and became a beloved personality out of that experience, which seems like not from any like giant effort that you made to get yourself there. And then Mm. later, the whole environment you were in became the subject of at least turmoil and controversy within the food world. I'm not sure every man, woman, and child on the street has any idea, but within the food world, it was quite um, kind of an eruption, if you will. So I, I wanted to ask you, I'm sure there's both really great things about having worked at Bon Appetit, even at a time that has been maybe maligned, but then there's also things that maybe hopefully you've come out of the turmoil and, and, and have gotten out of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think like any complicated real world situation, it was mixed. And I, there's a lot about my time there that I value. I mean, I worked there for five years, um, in the test kitchen. I started as a recipe tester, sort of the, uh, the low rung on the ladder, um, which was a great a great first entry point for me into the world of magazines and food media. And I learned a lot and I worked with some wonderful people. Um, but of course, you know, given the kind of reckoning that happened there, I did reflect back on a lot of my experiences and think, you know, it was my, it was my first and kind of only job really in the food. I mean, that's still true in the, in food media. And I sort of looked back on it and sat and thought, well, you know, maybe I look at that moment or that interaction or that environment differently. Um, and I don't think that I don't discount it entirely at all. I mean, for five years, you know, that, that was how I got my start and, and learned a lot and again, worked with wonderful people. Um, 
but I learned a lot from the experience, of course. Um, I'd have to be a fool not to. I mean, I think I learned how to have really uncomfortable conversations with people. Mm. And there's, I think, a certain like integrity in yourself that you have to have, I think, to to do that. And I sort of learned how to find that. Um, and I think that that has served me well in the time since. Um as well as just sort of like it, it, it was a crash course, I, I think, in empathy, really, um, and being able to put yourself in other people's positions and maybe sort of see like other, you know, maybe someone else's experience wasn't your experience, but that experience is very real and important and can be foregrounded um, over your own. So it, I think I'm still like learning a lot of the lessons from everything that happened at Bon Appetit. Um, and I think that the staff has as well. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, the staff is very different now than it was, you know, even a year or two ago. Um, and I, and I follow it as like a reader, you know, I don't, I don't have, I don't, in a, I don't have a relationship with the magazine anymore. Um, but I think that they're doing really great work and I hope that people, do read the magazine and, and, and go online and follow them on social media. Um, because I think that the work that they're doing now is, is, is really wonderful. Yeah, no. And I think the irony is for all the behind the scenes issues, they, the breakthrough of taking a rather old world magazine that followed a certain pre-digital age format and finding its purpose and voice in the digital age through web series is a pretty big breakthrough that um, warts and all they should be given credit for because not not every I mean a lot of food magazines have gone the, that are terrific on paper never figured that out and as a result are barely in print anymore if at all so that right is a huge accomplishment yeah I mean as you said I got I got I wasn't um I didn't start at Bon Appetit with the idea that like oh, I'm dying to be in video and there was no video initiative when I started um and so that happened by chance and, and sort of by accident. But it, that, you know, that helped me discover a part of myself and develop a part of my career that I now really love. And um, I appreciate the connection that you drew at the top about like, you know, Julia as a teacher on camera. And I, that's really how I see myself as, as a teacher. And so I don't think that I would necessarily be doing video if the, if I hadn't started at Bon Appetit, but I I love doing it and I love having it be this um, really wonderful interactive um, you know teaching format. And how is it going? Sort of coping with sort of like Julia being thrust into a public as a public figure beyond where you ever expected to, and I assume why. I'm guessing more of the difficult conversations that were meaningful you were behind the scenes with your colleagues and the people who were impacted more than you realized versus maybe the haters online or has that all have you just gotten used to navigating the whole minefield? I don't pay attention. I don't. I mean, I don't put myself in a position where I can see and receive online feedback really, even when it's positive. Um and I've been lucky that in my career, like a lot of the feedback has been really positive on 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 different platforms, which is obviously not. I mean, there's negative too. I know that it's out there, but um, but I try. I, I try to 
listen to the positive feedback more than the negative. And I just don't, and I, I'm very sensitive. I, I know that about myself. I'm also very private. I mean, I think that the public dimension of what I do has made me look at myself and like figure out things about myself that I maybe wouldn't have been spurred to figure out, um, you know, had I not had this or or would I not have this public um, presence? So I just don't look, I I would much rather show like save my energy to show up for the people in my life and my family and my husband and my friends than to be kind of sucked into what I ultimately think is not, is not a real, it's just not a real place that's worthy of my time and energy. So I, I make a really deliberate decision. I don't read comments. I use social media very sparingly and much more sparingly now than I did several years ago um, because I just don't have faith in that space. Like, I just don't think that that's a place where I can have meaningful discourse or dialogue. So I, and I don't mean at all to dismiss the people that watch. I love, I love that people watch. I love that it, that, the YouTube work that I do now and the episodes that, that I create with, with, uh, with, you know, friends and partners is they're really joyful and, and the response is so positive. And I, and I know that, um, and I'm grateful that for everyone that has subscribed to the channel and watches, um, and I love that it has become a community, but I just don't want to be in a place where like the one negative comment drags me down and there's, you know, 99 positive comments. Like the, the, the positivity is what's important. So I just have to kind of put those protections in place because I'm trying to maintain my own sort of, you know, positive mental space. I think that sounds frighteningly well-adjusted of you and kudos to your parents for raising someone who, <laughs> who, who is able to to do that because I, I, I think that's well said. And I don't think at all that you saying, yeah, I try not to read the negative comments because they will take me to a place I don't want to be. And they're probably not going to help you ultimately do your job better. So is is not at all the same as saying, I don't appreciate the digital world and the viewers and that I have. And, and I think you're 100% right that in general, you know, online comments, particularly that are made relatively anonymously are not generally constructive criticism. Yeah. I mean, and it, like, look, it's mixed, you know, it's very, it's a whole big, a mixed bag. And right now, you know, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still developing strategies and approaches, but right now, like I'm, I'm in a place where I have developed an approach to it that works for me and not just works, but is, is fulfilling and fun and successful. And so I'm really grateful for that, but it's like, I'm, I'm constantly, I think, I think like everybody reevaluating my relationship to these spaces and, and platforms. So, um, I like to keep doing things as long as I'm enjoying it and getting something out of it. And so I, I hope that I can keep doing the YouTube thing for a long time because I, I love, I love the actual work of making the episodes and filming them. And I have such a great crew. Um, and then I love that people watch them and then go make the recipes. So, you know, for the time being, it's, it really works. I, I think that makes total sense. All right, we're going to take a break <laughs> and we'll be back with more from Claire Savitz talking about dessert. Stay with us. 
Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has made specialty cheese in the rolling hills of Wisconsin for more than 30 years. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style Grand Cru cheeses. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sir Chois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to author, recipe developer, and video host Claire Saffitz about receiving the 2021 IACP Julia Child First Book Award for her first cookbook, Dessert Person. So I, I can't remember where I picked this up. It's actually in the introduction or not to your book, but you kind of said you felt like, and, and you alluded to this in the, the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about being a dessert person yourself, that desserts needed defending. Why do they need defending? Yeah, I was thinking about this question. I mean, I I think in the general population that probably doesn't need defending. I think there is, you know, there, there's a, a attitude, I think, towards sweets that like, yes, this is like a, this is an enjoyable, special thing. Um, but I think in like food media, I experienced a lot. I think there's this idea, this is not particular to the food world or any particular industry, but the idea of like, you know, your tastes say something about you mm-hmm. and you can like, re- you can sort of project sophistication in your, in what you dismiss or embrace, you know, for, you know, so it's, it's the idea of like, you could, sort of dismiss desserts as something unnecessary or less valuable because it's sweet. And I don't, you know, obviously there's like all sorts of, there's discourse about the evils of sugar, which I totally understand. And we should not be like, you know, consuming tons of sugar in our, um, in our diets. But to me, it's like, okay, if you have, you know, if you cook for yourself and you're eating, you know, balanced meals, like you're not having sugar in your diet elsewhere. Like, you know, I don't, I'm not a soda drinker. Um, so what's wrong with having it at the end of a meal? So I just, uh, to me, the idea of defending desserts is just pushing back on this kind of, um, yeah, a shortcut this, that desserts are bad and, and to, yeah. you need to minimize them when there's other ways to balance it out. If you, yeah. Or that like, I could somehow seem like a, you know, someone with, with high taste because I sort of you know, I poo poo desserts or something like that. So, um, I, I, (laughs) there's been times where like, I've been out, I will like very, not obnoxiously, but I will demonstrably be like, I would like dessert, you know, um, because everyone else is sort of like, Oh, you know, we don't, we don't need that. And I'm like, I would, I would like to order dessert. So I'll sit here at the table. (laughs) I think if, if Julia was here, it's kind of a little bit like when the fat police swept through and everyone was doing, this is, more like the 90s, when people were doing no-fat diets and, you know, own, basically like eschewing all fat. And obviously a, there's a fat and a fair amount of desserts made with butter and stuff like that. And it just like went too far. And there's this view that, you know, if you just cut out dessert, then then you're somehow being healthy and you're being abstemious and you're being responsible when mm-hmm. I think you're pointing out there are myriad ways to eat a balanced diet. Yeah. I mean, it's the idea that 
by refusing dessert, you're being virtuous. And I also, but I reject that because I really, I really object to the idea of ascribing morality to food. Like dessert is not good or bad. You're not being a bad or, you know, people say, use the word sinful, which I find like a little cringy with, as with respect to food or dessert, because it's not, there's no moral weight at all. It's just food and you can eat it if you like it or don't eat it if you don't like it. So I really- Well, I think that's a fantastic message actually about the the morality that's put into food and how dangerous that is in terms of particularly mental health and and, and mm-hmm. eating habits. So I think I think that's actually a really great way um, to put it. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of work personally with taking the with divorcing food from from morality or like good or bad decisions, and and I to me like you know I and. It has had, I, I think I'm somehow, I hope I'm not giving this idea that like I'm eating this crazy diet full of, you know, d- only You're desserts. Oreo although- <laughs> smoothies for breakfast and, and a right. piece of although cake when for I'm, lunch. Right. When I'm recipe testing, it kind of is how it is. But um, no, but I, I mean, because I first and foremost think about like, what do I want to eat and what am I craving? And and like I end up eating a, a naturally, I think, really healthy diet, actually. It's like I love vegetables. I crave – when I've been eating too many desserts because I'm recipe testing, I like all I want to eat is something green and raw. So I think it's just the idea of food. Like your food choices don't make you a good or bad person. Your food choices themselves are not good or bad. They hold no moral weight. Eat what you want to eat. And I think that like your body has the wisdom to sort of like on, you know, on the balance, like leave you feeling pretty good. So yeah, I think, and and I don't know, like to me, dessert is part of the meal. And so I'm like, you can't leave it out. That's, that's the end. <laughs> like it just doesn't feel complete without it. Well, I think, yeah, Julia would have said, well, you can leave it out, but you're missing out because I read you a whole list of all these fantastic things I like to make. Right. And speaking of, so I made your minty lime bars over the holidays, and they were delicious. Um, they turned, they were orangey because I used castor sugar, but they still tasted fine, and that was oh, my, interesting. Yes, it was. So they look like they should be flavored with orange, but they tasted exactly right. And I'd never made lime curd before either, and it turned out perfectly. So I say that because I think it's a testament to great recipe development, and. Um, I was curious, have you gotten a lot of gratifying feedback um, from readers, from recipes in the book, or what feedback have you gotten, or or are you deliberately not reading those comments? (laughs) Um, I do do see feedback here and there. I think I'm receiving possibly less because I'm not checking, like, all you know, all the channels. Um, But of course, I get people reaching out, friends, family, friends of friends, you know, um, and, and I'm seeing it here and there on social media as well. So yeah, I'm getting feedback and it's super positive. I think I'm also, I'm also get like really constructive criticism about what works and what doesn't work. And I've learned a lot about sort of a lot, a lot about recipe writing and the kind of ways in which a recipe can be structured in order to like I think lend the flexibility that it needs to work in multiple kitchens with multiple cookware and bakeware and all of that, uh, but still give enough instruction that you're not, you know, that you're, you're guiding people in a helpful way. So 
I think recipe development, especially with baking, it's just challenging because there are so many variables and it's just really hard to know, like something can work five times in a row in my kitchen, in my oven, on my stove, whatever. And it, and there could be something that I'm just somehow not accounting for that doesn't work in somebody else's kitchen. So I t- I really, I like all the feedback, whether it's positive or I guess I want to say negative, but yeah, like this thing didn't work for me. Um, and really the negative feedback is, is a lot more helpful than the positive because like, I, I want to know, I want to know what didn't work. And then I want to, I like to do a kind of almost like, I like to do an interrogation <laughs> of, well, why didn't it work? Well, what happened? Well, what did it look like at this stage? And what kind of pot, pot did you use? And how long did it go for? You know, I, I do like lots of questioning um, because I really want to know because my priority is that you get something that you can enjoy and don't, you don't feel like you wasted your time and energy and ingredients. Um, yeah. So it's been wonderful really um, in, in every way because for the people that had wonderful success, I'm so happy. I'm so glad that this thing worked out and that you really liked it and you got to eat it with your you know, family. And then for people where it didn't work out, it's like, I learned something to make my work better. I think the next time. Yeah. It sounds like you really like the forensic ab- approach or take a forensic approach to recipe development, which I mean, basically you have to, to enjoy recipe development. And and I'm sure you found in your career how many – I think there's an assumption that if you have a published cookbook, the, the recipes all work great. And I I think it's, there's a pretty wide variety of recipes that are written that either don't work or usually they don't work because the way the recipe is written is not clear enough for people who are just coming to it cold. I don't know if you find that too. Yes, I do. I think that a lot of recipes, you know, there's like super talented cookbook authors and recipe developers and professionals who I think maybe don't, there's like expert bias where they don't really realize how, you know, something that is second nature to them is actually really challenging and unfamiliar to to a novice or to, to a home cook or home baker. So I think that there can be moments and it, it's not a reflection of like the skill of the re- recipe developer because recipe making a recipe and writing a recipe are very, very different. So I try to be aware of, of my own expert bias and really, I like to over, this is just kind of like a personality trait, but I like to, I like to give too much detail and then I can kind of, I can kind of pare it back, but I really try to, um, I'd rather err on the side of giving more detail than rather than less detail. So I like to give lots of doneness indicators. So when you're baking a cake, it's not just about like a, a cake tester or toothpick coming out clean when you put it in the center, it's, it will be golden brown across the surface. It'll be pulling away from the sides. It'll be springy in the center, slightly domed, you know, all of these things. Um, because I would, I just want all the tools, you know? No. And that's a great, that's an example, a great example of a good instruction because everyone, even if your oven, you set it to, to, you know, 375, it may be off. And so having that guidance helps the user self adjust for the fact that their oven wasn't actually at the temperature prescribed. Yeah. I mean, recipes, there's a paradox because I think professional cooks and recipe developers and cookbook authors really, they understand that cooking is, it's like a, a, a sensory process. It is, 
there's so many things that happen that are not just about following instructions. And yet we're telling people how to make things in instructional language, you know, within the structure of a recipe. And so there's a tension between like, follow everything I tell you to do, but then think for yourself and don't listen to the recipe (laughs) sometimes, you know? Um, So I try to give people a balance of like, strict and specific guidance, but then also tools to say, to, to judge for themselves. So it's like, you know, I might tell you that this cake takes 45 to 55 minutes, but if at 40 minutes, you're like, I don't know, it smells done and it looks done and the cake tester is clean, then you should take it out. So it, there's a tension there. Um, and I'm always trying to like refine how I, how I approach that. Yeah, no. And I, I think people have to realize too, that like, you know, every recipe or every dish doesn't come out perfectly, even with the expert who invented it every time. If you wait two minutes too long or the weather conditions are different, you're going to get a different result. And so there's just, there's so many variables that go into cooking. It is hard to get perfection every single time. Yeah. There's so many variables. They can't all be accounted for. You know, I don't have, I don't develop recipes in a laboratory where I can change only one variable at a time and, and, you know, and control it in that way. Um, so it is hard. And, and I try to encourage people to like reframe expectations a little bit. I think of, I, I totally understand the mindset that's like, I just want this thing to come out perfectly. And I want mine to look like the picture in the book. I am like that. But I also, at the same time, I've experienced so much, for lack of a better word, failure in the kitchen, like things that just don't work that I I have come to reframe it differently. And that it is like getting good in the kitchen, being a proficient baker and cook is a long game and you got to play that. And so it just means not seeing, not, not conceding defeat, you know, if something doesn't turn out, it's like, you just got to try it again and it'll probably come out better the next time. And you learn something. So I get you, look, you're trying to make dinner for your family. I understand that you want it to come out. I, I totally get it. But, you know, with baking, I don't know. There's, I just, I do encourage more of a flexibility of attitude about, about the process. I think that is all very sage wisdom on, on cooking and baking and desserts. So tell us, um, before we go to break, what are your plans for the grant that comes from the foundation with your IACP Julia Child First Book Award honors? The grant was such a wonderful gift and surprise too. Um, so I'm I'm really using it to support like final final recipe testing for this book. Um, and you know, writing a cookbook is a long process, and um, you know, you pay for all your ingredients and and you know, the idea of like a book advance is that it kind of floats you while you work on the book and it, and it can be income. But, um, so I, the, the grant really supplements that and helps me to even be able to put in more time, I think, to, to really getting the recipes to a place where I want them. And so, um, I'm going to continue to do that. And it, it gives me just like a little bit of a cushion to be able to refine everything to the place where I feel so good about it. Um, which is really a gift because, it's just not always feasible to do that. I think there were things about dessert person where I was like, oh, if I had just, you know, maybe had one more test or a little more time. I mean, there's a, you can take that to an extreme where like you feel like you're never done. Mm. Um, at a certain point, you just have to be like, I'm done. I'm not <laughs> going to make this thing again. Uh, and it's good enough and it will never be perfect. Uh, yeah. So the, the grant is 
is giving me a little bit of extra, like an extra window that I'm really grateful for to be able to put this book to rest and feel like so, so good about it. And, um, and like, I really, you know, left no, left no stone unturned in the process. Well, and it's great because you've already fulfilled the, the the grand and awards mission to propel you along in your your writing career. Although I suspect you already had the book in in progress before you got the award, <laughs> but but we'll, we'll we'll just count that if that's okay with you. <laughs> sure. All right. After the break, we're going to hear Claire's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. And let us know what you think about today's show. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's mortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Claire, what's your Julia moment? I thought about this because I I have several, Um, but I picked sort of a a quieter one, which which really is, I think, was so formative. So um, I graduated from college in 2009. I have to think about if that's right. That is right. It was 2009. Um, and I moved home with my parents and I had no idea what I was doing and like couldn't find a job. Um, and I was just cooking all the time. And my parents live in the Boston suburbs. And of course, being Boston, there were reruns of The French Chef on PBS and I watched them all the time. And I would get ideas for what I would want to make for dinner um, mm. for my parents and, you know, steak au poivre and all of these things that I saw Julia make. Uh, and my family loved what we would watch them all together as well. Um, it was sort of like one of the few things both of my parents and I would all want to watch. Um, and I remember watching at least one of the egg episodes and watching Julia poach an egg and thinking to myself, like it, I was like 22 thinking to myself, like, Oh, it just never occurred to me. Like, Oh, I could poach an egg. Like that's something I could do. I thought poached eggs, you know, it's like something you get at a diner or it comes on eggs Benedict and, it was, I sort of was like, I was like, I'm going to try this. And I remember I was home alone and I did it exactly how she said. I put the little vinegar in the water. I made the little, the vortex and it worked. And I was so impressed with myself and felt so empowered and, and so also kind of like encouraged in the process um, by Julia and her wisdom that it really, I, I do feel like it was a very small moment, but an important moment in my career because it's just very empowering when you realize that you can do things that you don't, you can learn something that you didn't know how to do and that seemed challenging. And I think that that like so much of cooking is about understanding that you are capable of more than what you can currently do and that you can learn and succeed and do something that feels hard and arduous. So that's something like, you know, poaching an egg, it's simple, but it's also very complex. Um, and that you can, you actually can like make a souffle and you can roast a chicken and you can, you know, all of these things that feel 
Like it's just not in your reach um, because you don't have any experience with it. I think the idea of like breaking that seal or crossing that threshold into trying something that you've never tried before is really important. And I credit Julia with walking me through that, like bringing me over that threshold a little bit. Um, because as a cook, like your whole life as a cook is just kind of in many ways, like doing things that you've, that are unfamiliar that you've never done before. Um, so I, that was again, like a small moment, but such an important one. And I really, as much as I was like very lost in that period of my life or newly new, new college graduate with like no idea what I was doing in the world. Um, Julia was a very, uh, just wonderful presence in my life at that time. <laughs> very, very encouraging. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. I think that was a great one. I, I do think one of the things that maybe coming into focus more after Julie has been gone for longer, that this that that theme you talked about, about being empowering and how her whole presentation of how she approached cooking and then how she taught it was that empowerment factor. And, and that's great. So thank you very much for highlighting that. And thank you for joining us today. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was such a great conversation. I enjoyed it too. And I hope everyone else did. And they will let us know if they didn't. And Claire won't <laughs> pay attention to that. So, <laughs> and we will all look forward to hearing more and maybe have you back on for your next book. I can't wait. Thank you so much. And if you want to hear more or see more from Claire, she's at C. Saffitz on Instagram. And her website is dessertperson.com. And you can search Claire Saffitz on YouTube to join the nearly 1 million subscribers to her Dessert Person video series. And make sure you're following us. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. We're close to announcing the lineup of exciting and safe Santa Barbara Culinary Experience events for 2022. Join us in Santa Barbara and throughout the county, May 20th to 22nd. Go to sbce.events and sign up for our mailing list. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is News French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>